Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that recaps, chronicles, and overanalyzes the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters Minute by Minute. I am Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Christopher Stewart from Proton Charging in the Interdimensional Crossrip. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, for the listeners out there, and I doubt there are very many uh, who aren't aware of you or your involvement in the Ghostbusters community, could you kind of tell us uh, how you got started back in 1995, creating a website and everything, <laughs> and, and, and try to condense your entire history with Ghostbusters? Yeah, right. We're going way back. Uh, well, like everybody, I'm a fan basically to whenever I first saw the movie, which happened to be uh, 84 in the theater as a, a young gentleman. Um the fan stuff kind of started a bit later. I needed it. It, it, it kind of had its wane after the movies. You know, there's there's other cool movies to see and all that, but it was still had a, a place in my heart. I love the video, the role playing game, and all that sort of thing. But uh, you know, after the second movie, things kind of faded a bit. And you know, they weren't making stuff anymore either, right? It was right. just whatever. You know, you had your home video and you watched it. And then I needed an excuse uh, to kind of learn the, the internet and HTML and all that sort of thing there at university. And uh, you know how it is if you want to learn something, pick something uh, that uh, motivates you. So I, I, you know, I'm like, hey, there's a couple of cool sites, but not a lot on Ghostbusters. I'll make a Ghostbusters website. And then foolishly, <laughs> I kept it going for 20 years. Um, <laughs> and then in the last year, actually, I connected with uh, Troy Benjamin at Ghostbusters HQ, another another old school fan site and uh he was starting up a podcast uh you know the the new movie had been announced and uh, there was kind of a dearth of podcasts so uh yeah he and i uh started recording there every wednesday uh we've been at it just over a year now so that's great yeah yeah that's it. That's the condensed version. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that uh, what you're talking about after Ghostbusters 2 came out, there was that drought of nothing. And it seems like in uh, geek culture, uh, there was a mindset uh, by creators in Hollywood that once the, the main properties were out, it was pretty much over. And maybe there was some uh, toy collection here or a comic book or, like you said, a role-playing game here or there. It wasn't like we have today where uh, all properties seem to be like an evergreen place. Uh, that Studios know that there is a, a, a desire for this stuff, and they can go back and say, hey, we're – you know, Star Wars is something that will live probably past the three of us, and you know, our, our grandchildren's grandchildren's will be enjoying it. And maybe the same thing is for Ghostbusters here too. So, um, when you did hear about the 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 story that the 2016 movie was coming out, how did you feel about the fact that you were going to have more Ghostbusters in your life? <laughs> well, I thought it was great uh, in in principle. I was happy to see anything anybody was going to try. I mean. There's so many stops and starts between 89 and, you know, whatever it was, 2014, that uh, I was very reserved, very guarded. Uh, you couldn't get excited anymore every time Dan Aykroyd stood up and said, we're starting next week, because yeah, that's, right. that's just what he loved to do. He was the, the main cheerleader and always operated on the assumption that it was going to tick over any minute. So, yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm like, I don't, I, I have a, a family and a little, uh, I had a son uh, there a couple of years ago and uh, <laughs> so I don't have the 
the 20 something disposable, uh, income that I used to have. So yeah. <laughs> I knew a lot of stuff would be coming and it would be as a collector, it was going to drive me nuts and it has, um, <laughs> but you know, that's, that, you know, that's what they say. It's a good problem to have, right? I'd rather have too much stuff and I pick and choose my faves than sitting around going, Ooh, there's nothing. So exactly. Yeah. Have yeah. You introduced your kids to uh, ghostbusters yet? Um, little man, uh, had a, a, a Kenner, uh, Stay Puff in his bassinet there at the hospital, so Aww. from day one onwards. Uh, I tried not to push it on him, I, I kind of find it stressful for both kids and the parents that you, you try to make them love the thing you love, um, yeah. uh, so I didn't really expose him to too much, he gravitated to my backup, um, cartoon of Ghost Hunters, which was Scooby-Doo. So that was a good holdover. Yeah. And then more and more recently, I got him the the new Proton Pack, and he loves playing with that. So, you know, one day at a time. He's been introduced, he's been primed, but I, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, you can just plant a seed and see how it goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Out of it. Yeah. All right, so we're going to jump in here into a recap of minute 17, and uh, once we get done here, we'll just kind of banter and uh, throw out some trivia uh, about uh, what we've had here in this minute, and um, yeah, just have some fun with it. So here we go. Uh, minute number 17. Now, we just saw a cab pull up alongside of the Shandor building, and we had a great shot of a terror dog gargoyle going into that. So minute 17, we see Sigourney Weaver as Dana Barrett step out of the cab. She's carrying groceries. At 17 minutes, 27 seconds, after entering an apartment building and stepping off a beautiful Art Deco elevator, Dana walks towards her apartment and runs into Louis Tully, played by Rick Moranis. Louis Tully tells Dana that he thought she might be the drugstore delivering some vitamins that he ordered. Louis Tully is wearing a blue jogging tracksuit. At 17 minutes, 40 seconds, Louis tells Dana that he was doing a 20-minute workout at high speed in order to get a faster workout. Dana responds simply with, good. At 17 minutes, 44 seconds, Lewis asks Dana if she wants to come over for a mineral water. Dana says she'd like to, but she has to go to rehearsal. At 17 minutes, 50 seconds, Lewis tells Dana that he has always has low-sodium mineral water ready for her. Dana responds with, yeah, I know that. At 17 minutes, 58 seconds, Lewis invites Dana to an upcoming party at his apartment. So that concludes minute 17 of Ghostbusters. So not a whole lot going on plot-wise, but we do get the introduction of Lewis Tully and Dana Barrett here in this uh, in this one minute. So. A quick observation, too. Have you ever noticed in movies whenever anyone has a bag of groceries, there's always celery sticking out of the top? Yeah. <laughs> Watch by it every time. It's some, either, sort of, some sort of greenery, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's either celery stick or like a French baguette sticking out of the top. You know, it's it's very clearly uh, uh, demonstrates to the audience that you know this person has been shopping for produce. They're about to make dinner or something like yeah. that. But yeah, you have to have it sticking out of the top there. So, um, so they both live here at 55 or the Shandor Building, which I think was 55 West Park Avenue. Was that or Central Park? Excuse me. Central Central Park West. 55 Thank Central you, Central Park, Park West. West. Yeah. Now, so. I just I was curious to it, you, we always hear about the how crazy the prices are for apartments in New York and I actually found that there are two apartment uh, units up for sale right now in 55 Central Park West. Do you guys want to hear how much they're going for? Yeah, go. Okay, so we've got um, uh, unit number two E, uh, which has six rooms, three bedrooms, three bathrooms, and 2,000 square feet. So that's a lot of bed and bath. Um, Brady, take a guess at how much this is going to go for. Well, no, 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 I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> Any guess, Christopher? Uh, I think I recall there was a big news blur about a few years ago. I'm putting it 
Does it say if it has a view or not? I'm assuming uh, they all technically have a view. I guess it would have a view, but it doesn't. It doesn't say if it's a corner or not. I would say nothing less than eight million. Oh wow, kind of close at three million eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, that's not close at all. Don't don't patronize <laughs> me. That was way too high. <laughs> I guess maybe real estate is going for cheap right now in New York. But uh, one closer to the apartment size that Dana Barrett has that we're going to see in the upcoming minute: uh, three point five rooms, one bed, one bath. That is one million ninety-five thousand dollars on contract. So, yeah, crazy expensive. Now, especially expensive, if you consider that a concert cellist, uh, the or by two thousand eleven, uh, in New York was making about one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars a year. So, pretty good annual income, but nowhere near enough to afford an apartment at a million ninety-five thousand. Yeah, for real. That is crazy. So, um, so Brady, you have any thoughts or observations on this minute? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, Chris, you can actually tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Sigourney Weaver, whenever she did her audition for Ivan Reitman, she actually got up on the couch and started, like, got on all fours and started barking like a dog. Yeah, that's the the anecdotal uh, story that they love to tell. Uh, Reitman's mentioned it. I think Weaver's mentioned it. Uh, it's one of those... Um, uh, it's on the short list of stories, like, uh, what's her name, uh, from Blade Runner... Dressing up as Catwoman and and uh, oh, yeah. Men- yeah. menacing Sean some Young. some director yeah Sean Young there's a, there's a short list of actresses that really go above and beyond although this one is probably the less creepy of all of them um, and I guess it worked because you know she got the job yeah right uh, something else too actually for Louis Tully um, originally John Candy was asked to you know play the play the part and. There was something about how he insisted on it being a German character, and he wanted to have some big, like, dogs or something like that. And it was just all these ideas that were a little too left of center, or just not exactly what Ivan Reitman had in mind. And uh, yeah, they they had him in mind, and they they wrote it kind of with his SCTV Johnny Larue character in mind, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, you know, like a a low level playboyish bachelor <laughs> kind of thing. And then by the time he got to the set, he started rethinking it. Um, and I mean, this carried all the way in pretty far into to pre-production because really? there's actually storyboards uh, of a, at least one scene, although yeah, it was a cut scene, where the sketch the the sketch artist it, it's obviously John Candy. It's you know a, a large gentleman and all mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, I think they literally got to like time to come to set and he got there and he was like yeah I want to do this German guy thing and Reitman's like that's too over the top huh wow uh, I didn't realize and, it had gotten that far in yeah and then they had to do some real emergency auditioning um, they they always talk like and and there was uh, Rick Moranis and he stepped in but uh, Rick himself has said that there was an audition process and a couple of years ago uh, Michael McKean yeah I was going to say Spinal Tap yeah. yeah, he revealed that he he had auditioned for it. So I'm pretty sure it was a whirlwind audition period. But yeah, yeah they, they definitely stopped and went, we, okay, this is not an insignificant role in the movie. we got to find the right guy. And uh, <laughs> looked around to the usual suspects, I guess, comedy-wise in the 80s. And there he yeah. was. And we, you know, uh, I think one of Canada's primary exports in the 80s was uh, comedic actors. You know, like, yeah. It seems like all the best uh, comedy actors were coming out of Canada. And, uh, you know, uh, Rick Moranis, uh, is, uh, he's out of Toronto, is that correct? Uh, yeah. Actually, I think it's probably then it was a good 50-50 split because mm-hmm. uh, Chicago, New York, and then, you know, Canada. Because right. there was, there was that, that SCTV breeder reactor of comedy that was really yeah. hitting its stride and leading into SNL. Um, 
So yeah, if you go look at the SCTV crew, again, all Second City people, but one half, like Joe Flaherty, I think, is Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's a heavy, heavy on the Canadians, heavy on the, on the, <laughs> the, the, the Windy City people. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid uh, watching Ghostbusters, I always thought it was funny that Lewis keeps getting locked out of his apartment, that he's doing it to himself or whatever. And what I've, I guess I've kind of like come to notice over the years is that the building is sort of targeting him and Dana. And here is this guy who can't ever get back into his own apartment. He can't find an unlocked door, a tavern on the green. And who does he become but the Keymaster? Yes. There's a, there's a nice irony there. Yeah. Yeah. Cosmic irony in that. You know, um, I, I think it would have been interesting to have John Candy in this role, but I really can't picture anybody else as Louis Tully other than Rick Moranis. He really kind of came in and owned this. And in a comedic movie like this, he seemed, it's the, the comedic performances in Ghostbusters are very dry, and his is probably the least dry of all the characters. You know, he's, he's doing something a little bit different than everybody else in this movie. Um, and I, I think the character's better for it, you know? Yeah, I can see that. It definitely makes him stand out. Uh, so Sigourney Weaver, this was uh, – so the story is that she really wanted to do a comedy at this point, and her career up into this, she had done – Alien was her big hit, but she was also uh, in Annie Hall, had a very small part in that. And um, after Alien, she could kind of you know pick her projects, uh, so to speak. So she wanted to do comedy with this and then comes in, and it's, it's a comedic movie, but she's playing it very seriously. Uh, as the Dana Barrett character has to be a little bit of, um, you know, she's tough like she is in all of her other movies, but she has to have a little bit of vulnerability because she's the one, like Brady said earlier, that the building kind of picks as its uh, target for this yeah, whole she, thing. She really is like the, the everyman in this movie, like the normal person that, you know, we can all kind of, uh, you know, it's hard for us to relate to any of the Ghostbusters or Lewis for that matter. And so she's sort of like, I think, where we all kind of gravitate to whenever we watch the movie. Yeah, and she's not really known for comedic movies. Uh, you know, of course, she's uh, one of the greatest female characters on screen of all time, Ellen Ripley in the Alien series. But she's also in um, Galaxy Quest, and I can't really think of a whole lot of other comedy she's been in beyond that. Maybe like Dave, I think. But she in those movies, she doesn't really play up the comedy aspect. She's a very dramatic actress in yeah. all these roles. So um, that's right. I never really thought about that. I guess the in, unless we're totally forgetting something, I think Galaxy Quest is probably the closest she's ever come to to doing comedy. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure I'm I'm totally leaving something out there too. I'm yeah, I think uh, no, I think you're right. Dave might be it, but yeah. but in all of them, with the exception of Galaxy Quest, uh, she fills that um, oh boy, like the Bud Abbott role or whatever the 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 straight yeah. person, straight uh, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. no no real jokes. Uh, mm-hmm. No, maybe maybe a couple of good reads of some straight lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like you're. You're more like a game show host and stuff like that. Yeah. So she does get some good quotes and some good lines in, but she's the one who's just there to be exasperated at, at the rest of them and their antics. Right. Uh, she basically throws up a wall at Peter Venkman every, you know, and kind of continuously gives him a goal to strive for. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'll see if I can do these by small things. So yeah, it's her first appearance. Uh, so it's us getting introduced to her, uh, and as you guys pointed out, it's also when we get to meet Lewis. So it's a very dense one because they're both critical to the story but we got to meet them real quick and figure mm-hmm. out who they are and as you say we get they have we have they have to endear themselves to us really really quickly or we're not going to care that they turn into you know possessed uh, uh, dog monsters later right um, one thing I wanted to point out was the way they set it up originally um, Lewis uh, in an early script makes a comment about 
oh, you were exercise. I see you were exercising. I was exercising too. But in the final one, she's not. Later on, uh, 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 at the party Lewis mentions, the evening of the, the party Lewis mentions, she mm-hmm. is wearing uh, exercise things. So they took this split, and I, it, I kind of always wondered about it until I remember reading a bit where they wanted to make her a model, like Sigourney mm-hmm. Weaver. So your character's a model. And she said, how about I'm a bit classier than that, and I'm a musician. So if she's going to show up and be a musician, she can't also then be wearing, you know, her aerobicized yeah. uh, outfit. Yeah. And so, yeah, they put her back in her, her you know, um, rehearsal gear and had her lug up uh, her cello. And, yeah, it's it's perfect. It's never like it's never like she steps out and says, hello, I'm a trained classical musician in an orchestra. She, you know, once you're carrying a cello, you know you're, you're pretty yeah. familiar with yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah. what you're doing uh so yeah it was it was there was an interesting uh split uh, in one of those things where they got there and obviously just sort of slapped it around there is no real notes on what she's wearing later on for that other evening so i think somebody just went take the exercise thing and put it elsewhere and he never mentions it he's just bragging about doing his own workout thing and would would I be reading too far into it to say it'd be funny if they were both in exercise equipment when later they become possessed and need to be ex- excised? That, <laughs> that's just a bad joke on my part. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That was. I say go for it. I say yeah. go for it. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I like her idea about Dana being a, a concert cellist because um, this part at this point in time, New York still had a really bad reputation as a crime-ridden city. Uh, not really the mecca of culture that we think of it in other points in its history. So her being there, again, she's in uh, a dangerous situation being in this possessed apartment. She's in a dangerous situation being a concert cellist in a tough town like New York, too. So she's yeah. kind of like uh, the, the rose that grew up in the concrete, I guess, <laughs> in a way. And it, it nicely uh, sets her up as more than just the princess that needs rescuing. Right. I mean, she she ultimately is. She, she needs... Uh, you know, she needs to be rescued by the Ghostbusters and all that. But she's not just, I'm a pretty face, come rescue me. It's like, yeah. no, I'm, I'm, I have a master's degree. You know, I studied art history and I studied, you know, we don't find out about the art history till later, but it's very apparent that she's very intelligent, uh, very refined, and very educated. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though she does need to be saved by the Ghostbusters, she's not exactly, you know, uh, you know, just some average. <laughs> average pr- uh, pretty face that they yeah. can come rescue. Right, right. <laughs> and it definitely, it definitely, like you, uh, it it sets it up so that she is way out of Venkman's range. You can see him making <laughs> making a move on a model and uh, maybe having a decent shot. She is so far out of his range. Yeah, she's more of an intellectual, and that's a little bit probably, you know, not not worth the amount of work that he'd have to put into, uh, you know, sealing the deal. Well, or she gives him something else to work for. Too, you know, she's not going to put up with just kind of, you know, some slack-jawed yokel. She wants a guy who actually matches her in classiness, and ultimately, that's why she doesn't go with Peter Venkman after the events <laughs> of the first film. You know, she finds a guy who's probably uh, a little bit more aligned with her, you know, artistic interests. On that note, on that note, Oscar's father. Do you think it's the dude who is standing out there by the fountain with him, who's using the nose spray later on in the movie? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about what happened in the gap between Ghostbusters one and two. So I mean, is it has, is it ever identified that it, it is the 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 other uh, guy from the orchestra? Boy, I can't swear to it. I think some people have argued that in the novelizations or something, it's kind of mentioned that perhaps it is. 
Uh, they make it pretty clear in the movie that it's definitely not Venkman, though. Uh, so, right. I mean, if you're just going to find the easy fill-in, yeah, she... I have uh, a good friend of mine who has a theory that Oscar is Louis Tully's baby. Well, I would. I don't know if the time between the movies matches up to match that. No, not theory, at all. But I mean, w- w- over the course of the movie, the only person that we know for sure that uh, Dana Barry gets busy with is Lewis Tully. So I mean, there is that to go with it. But yeah. Uh, but it would be a four-year gestation. Of the <laughs> That's true. So, yeah, yeah, that is true. So unless unless they had some sort of uh, got together, reminisced, and she had a, vul- <laughs> a vulnerable moment or something. Uh, <laughs> There is a, a cut joke about that uh, where at the end of the movie, um, I think it's up on the roof, uh, and I think you can find it on YouTube, uh, that Lewis stumbles up and goes, Dana, did we? And she's like, no, Lewis. <laughs> no. Uh, just shuts them down cold. Uh, quite obviously they had, and perhaps if they you know, focus, they can remember it. And she's like, no, let's just pack this away and <laughs> never think of it again. Um I was just trying to think here. I got a couple of small things here. One was both movies, uh, she starts the movie carrying groceries. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. In the second one, she well, she starts the whole movie in the second one, but again, she's got her arms full uh, with a bag of groceries, and I think a baguette sticking out of the top. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing that uh, I always like to point out is that the uh, she gets out of the elevator and has a friendly moment with, uh, I guess, a, f- a floor mate, uh, he's at Lewis's party later. If you watch for him, oh really? He's sitting in the corner reading the uh, ingredients on a bag of chips. So, <laughs> huh? So I was wondering about that last night because I had never really paid attention to the guy that she kind of gets off and just gives a brief little nod and a hello to. And uh, I tried to look up some information on that guy. I figured maybe it was like you know Joe Magic's like little uh, appearance at the early earlier on in the movie. Maybe it was a producer who was on set that day, but I couldn't find anything about him. I think it's just a well used extra. He shows up yeah. later uh, when Peter shows up. Uh, he's being interviewed by a cop outside about the, the busted up party. Um, oh, okay. And I've wondered, and there's no real uh, proof of it, but I like to think that uh, Lewis's line about, uh, and I, oh, I guess we get to, get to it soon, but he's mentioned as uh, the creep down the hall. Yeah. Uh, complained. I'm like, I like to think he's the creep down the hall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, there's not. I I don't really have much else other than we brought up the groceries. Uh, the Pepperidge Farm box pops up and down quite a yeah. bit, uh, and again, there's no real evidence of it. But I've spent a lot of time pondering. Uh, E.T. was two years before, and E.T. was kind of the the movie that set the world of product placement on fire in movies. Oh yeah. Yes. And uh, if you do, if you if you sit there with a notepad, uh, the the conspicuous uh, uh, packaging in this movie, the, ten, the the tally gets up there pretty quick. And I've given that this box um, is down low and in, in the bag when you're looking over her shoulder, so you can see the logo on the top. But when it's looking over his shoulder, it's up above the bag, so again you can see the logo. I have a sneaking suspicion there was a bit of a. Uh, bit of a product placement thing going on there. Yeah, oh, like I'm it. sure. And, you know, it's crazy to um, – here we are coming out of Ghostbusters 2016, which was just riddled with product placement everywhere all over it. And I don't want to hold that against the movie because that's just the modern uh, – the way that movies are made. They're, they have to be heavily subsidized because the effects budgets on these things are so crazy. But I, I – when I think about Ghostbusters, I think about the the, uh, the 1984 film, 
the constant popping up of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man logo, either on the side of the building or in a few minutes when Dana has it in her kitchen, it was stuff that was all in-universe and kind of trying to, you know, plant some seeds for Stay Puft later in the movie. Yeah. I, I didn't notice the Pepperidge Farm, and I'm a, I love Petri, Pe- Pepperidge Farm. Milano's are great. Uh, <laughs> but I, I didn't really uh, consider that at the time. Uh, I came out of Ghostbusters 2016 going like, you know, hey, Papa John's Pizza is just fine, but oh my god, <laughs> it was everywhere in that movie. Uh, so. Yes, yeah, way less in your face. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that you have to repeat view before you start to pick up on it. Like uh, around that time, Coke was just buying up Columbia. So if you look, there's a lot of Diet Coke and Coke floating around. Yeah. Uh, Tab was owned by Coke at the time. It it pops up. Um, but then there's a uh, there's other weird set dressing ones too. Um, trying to think. You guys haven't gotten to it yet, but there's a Wise Potato Chips, which is a an East Coast specific really? brand that, um, in, <laughs> which is interesting to watch for because it sits behind Venkman uh, at his desk. But those were all shot in L.A., meaning whoever did the set dressing thought to drag a bag from the East <laughs> wow. Coast to the West Coast to set <laughs> yeah. it up. So, no. uh, so it's one part product placement, one part clever set dressing. It's, it, I mean, like I said, it was only two years after E.T. and the whole Reese's Pieces thing. So I think maybe they were still finding that balance. And as you say, we get to 2016 where she, let's write a joke about eating Pringles. They're delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, anytime they, they open are. Uh, Dana's uh, refrigerator, I mean, the first place my eyes go is the Coca-Cola cans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coke cans, so, Oscar Mayer, uh, Bologna in there, a couple of, there's some yeah. uh, Budweiser hanging around. Like, it's just, <laughs> but again, it's hard to tell whether at the time it was just innocent fill a fridge with normal stuff or if it was, make sure there's a can of Coke yeah, in there. What kind of, <laughs> what kind of diet does that girl have? I mean, I'm, I'm glad she's eating celery now since she's got, you know, marshmallows and bologna and Coca-Cola, whatever else she's put in her body. Well, definitely uh, you guys can talk about it more at the appropriate minute, but uh, <laughs> Bill Murray uh, uh, observed similarly when he improved, uh look at all the junk food. Ah. <laughs> So. I love that all that's considered junk food now too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, like if my fruit refrigerator was as healthy as hers is, I'd probably weigh like twenty pounds less because it's, <laughs> it's it's all like celery and like you know like produce and stuff. And mine is just like old Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't knock old Taco Bell, man. Oh, it's great. I'm probably gonna make a run for the border after this. So, <laughs> all right. Well, did you guys have anything else for this minute? I'm good. I think I I think that uh, it's pretty good. Okay, great. Well, we're going to um, uh, be back again tomorrow. Uh, Christopher's going to join us for minute number 18, where we're going to have a lot more of this insight. And, Chris, that, I'm blown away with the amount of stuff you came to this uh, to, yeah, to Seriously, this man. I mean, I, I feel inadequate on a pretty you know regular basis with this podcast. But... Yeah. Well, every episode I listen to, you guys are like, I have my notes. I'm like, oh, damn it. I actually have to pay attention to do research now. Do you just hear a bunch of like paper being burned and stuff? <laughs> I for twenty years I've happily off the cuff everything and like I gotta back this stuff up now. Ah Well that's that's fantastic and I can't wait for another minute here uh it, to tomorrow when we're gonna go over minute number eighteen. We get a little bit more dialogue with uh Lewis and Dana in the hallway, some really funny stuff and we get to see the Ghostbusters commercial. So well, we're right. gonna go ahead and sign off for the day here. Uh we will be back tomorrow. Christopher's gonna join us for minute number eighteen and uh, again Chris thank you so much for showing up today and doing this minute number 17 with us and uh, we will see everybody later for Christopher and for Brady this is Kyle signing off and remember death is but a door time a window we'll be back
Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a supporter, visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gbminute. You can also find us on social media at facebook.com slash ghostbustersminute, twitter.com slash gbminute, Instagram at Ghostbusters Minute, and visit our website at ghostbustersminute.com, where you can find merchandise such as t-shirts, stickers, and free balloons for the kids. Balloons subject to not being free, nor real. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License.